First of all, I would never, there's no point, no other time in human history than I would rather live than today. Mm. We are living in an age of miracles. It's, it's amazing. Like, it's insane, right? It's like you get on a, you get on a flight and we are super annoyed because it's delayed 15 minutes, right? And you're actually sitting in this like, like just miracle of engineering. My name is Stuart Alsop, and this is my podcast, Crazy Wisdom, where I interview creative people about how they work with and manage the stress that is inherent in creative work. What I've realized over the past 10 years of my research is that anybody who is creating something of value that is significantly different from what has come before is considered crazy. Most of us have a fear, an ingrained fear of going crazy. Uh, so what I'm saying is grab onto that fear, realize that it's there and just go with it because the problems we're going to be facing over the next 20 years require crazy people in order to solve them. So welcome to the Crazy Wisdom Podcast. Uh, my guest here is Elliot Pepper. Um, he writes fast-paced, deeply researched novels uh, uh, about science fiction, including Borderless, Bandwidth, Cumulus. Um, and he's also an advisor for tech companies to kind of help them figure out what's going to happen in the future. Uh, so welcome to the show, Elliot. Thanks so much for having me. Yeah. And so let's get right into it. Um, you You tweeted, you said that the main question that keeps you up at night is the uh, what does it mean to live a good life in an age of acceleration? Uh, do you have an answer for that? <laughs> um, well, I, I tend to like questions that don't have easy answers. I, I actually try to seek out uh, really difficult questions and, and wrestle with them. And, yeah. uh, and, and that's sort of where I find uh, sort of find the most, inspiration and, and sort of like fruitful wisdom to apply in my own life. Um, you know, I, we live in a pretty unique historical moment. Um, you know, we, if you were born at any other time in human history, your, the life your grandparents led and the rules that their lives sort of abided by, um, were, would be very similar to the life you led and the life that your grandchildren would have led would also be almost identical to, to the life you led mm -hmm. um, in terms of what you're spending your day doing in terms of uh, sort of your dreams and fears and, and the biggest things that, that impacted that, that impact your life um, that we, we had a society and a civilization that was, basically in a fairly steady state. Um, and that is no longer the case, right? I mean, my grandparents today uh, wouldn't recognize uh, or wouldn't even call what I do for a living a job, right? Um, and I doubt very much that my grandchildren um, will have, will, will, will do, will spend most of their days doing things that I uh, would easily recognize and understand today, yeah. right? So, um, you know, this, this really, the, you know, 
you can imagine that hunter-gatherers also lived very different lives than, than people living after the agricultural revolution. But since the agricultural revolution, there really wasn't a big change in the, in the sort of hidden systems that shape our lives until, you know, the advent of the printing press and the Renaissance and the industrial revolution, um, where technology really uh, changed the, the very fabric of our societies, right? So you went from most people living in abject poverty working fields um, to uh, living in slightly less abject poverty mm -hmm. <laughs> working in factories, mm -hmm. right? Um, and, uh, and, you know, I think that now you'd have to double check the numbers, but I think that now, you know, less than 2% of the American population works in agriculture, mm -hmm. right? Whereas 300 years ago, it was the opposite. Like, mm -hmm. you know, basically 98% of Americans worked in agriculture. That is, that is shocking. That is, I mean, that's, you know, that, 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 that's amazing and really, really wild and just so unusual when you mm -hmm. think about uh, how normality was pretty standard across most of human history. So, so today we're living in a time when those changes are accelerating, when scientific and technological um, innovation has, has shifted so many areas of our lives. So, you know, it took about 10,000 years for the agricultural revolution to sort of permeate everywhere. Um, you know, it took a couple hundred years for the industrial revolution to, to do its work, mm -hmm. right? Um, and the information revolution that we are in the middle of today has been happening on the scale of decades, right? And, and, and is changing industries so quickly that you probably will need to have multiple careers in your life, right? Because no matter what you do, your, what you call a job will, the definition is probably going to be changing a lot. I mean, there are certain exceptions, right? Mm -hmm. Like I'm pretty confident that, that we're going to need nurses for a long time to come, for example. Mm -hmm. Right. Um, but, but uh, that's, that's a weird place to be. It, it, mm -hmm. it, it, it gives us uh, a new challenge, which is to get comfortable living and thriving mm -hmm. with uncertainty. Yeah. Right. People, and that, mm -hmm. um, yeah, that's, that's really difficult, right? Most people, or many people prefer unhappiness to uncertainty, mm. <laughs> right? So, you know, that's the devil we know, yeah. right? So, you know, th there's actually very little that is, that is more scary than the unknown. Uh -huh. And so, you know, that you want to talk about stress, that's an enormous source of stress, yeah. right? And, and that's something that we are going to have to grapple with both in our individual lives, right? Mm. Like, like how are our lives going to change? Um, how are our children or our friends going to have to adapt to new ways of living um, than even our, you know, that, that aren't, that are very hard to extrapolate from today. Mm. Um, and it also uh, applies equally to our public lives, mm. right? It applies to how our governments work. It mm. applies to how our organizations work. It applies to how we work as a team and what it means to, to live on this planet. And so, you know, I, I think that that's really where all of this boils down to. Mm -hmm. 
And so as we go into the future, a lot of people kind of start uh, get the idea that we're entering a a stage of dystopia where, you know, our climate is changing and um, we're having a lot of kind of stresses that are putting on our, on this planet based on, on the, the uh, things we've, we've done industrialization over the last 300 years. Do you, but yet we've lived in a time of material abundance and, and the nineties were, were almost this kind of like, in the, in the West, in the developed world, uh, with this like total, almost utopia where, where any, materially speaking, we had anything we want. But now we seem to be sinking back into what happened in the 1930s is, is a rise of nationalism or closing of borders and stuff like that. But without this kind of material uh, lacking, it's, it's coming from more of a kind of a, uh, some could say spiritual, spiritual lacking. What do you think of that? Do you, do you think there's any truth in that? Well, I think you raised sort of a, a couple different points. So, uh, first of all, I would never, there's no point, no time, no other time in human history than I would rather live than today. Mm. Um, you know, we, we are living in an age of miracles. It's, it's like, mm-hmm. it's insane, right? It's like mm-hmm. you get on a, you get on a flight and we are, super annoyed because it's delayed 15 minutes right and you're actually sitting in this like like just miracle of engineering it's gonna throw you through the air at 600 miles an hour to you know take you across what uh lewis and clark you know risk life and limb to spend months traversing in like a couple hours right just so you can go to a meeting or, Mm -hmm. or i don't know have a weekend away for fun like we, we, we can, we, we send messages and we can talk like me and you right now, we're, we're, we're talking live and we're miles away from one another. And it's mm-hmm. not a problem at all. Your listeners are accessing this recording, you know, on a, you know, a window to the digital infinite that they happen to just carry around in their pocket because we're all essentially cyborgs now. Yeah. Right. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's, like, I mean, like, it is, you know, wild. Like, like, do I, would I want to live before antibiotics? Hell no. Yeah. Like, are you kidding me? Like, would I, like, would I want to live before contraception, before good plumbing, before, you know, like before electricity? Like, yeah. that is terrible. Like, anyone who, like, I love backpacking, right? Backpacking, mm-hmm. you know, camping is a great reminder of the enormous luxury that, that, that we live with today. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and, uh, you know, it's easy to take that luxury for granted and that's, um, that's and, and I work really hard to try not to. And that's what I'm, um, that's what I'm getting to is, is that essentially we have all this amazing stuff that is changing our lives for the better yet people yeah. are used to it within, you know, people get used to it within a couple months. Uh, and then they yeah, yeah. You, you create a new baseline, yeah. right? Yeah, like we, you know, we, we, in fact, I think that's sort of like one of the lessons we can learn from studying history and from imagining the future is, is it gives us perspective on the present because perspective is something we really don't have. Like we're born to the parents we're born to. We don't, that's not a choice we get to make, right? And so we, we grow up in a certain place in a certain time with a certain community around us. And those feel like, the baseline those Mm. feel like oh yeah this is just what life is like of Mm. course we have a car of course we get milk from a store right Mm. rather than actually from a cow 
Of, mm. of course you can flush the toilet. Mm. Of course you get to go to school. These are all things that we, that, that, that we take for granted because we didn't experience uh, their non-existence, right? Mm -hmm. um, and I think that's why, uh, you know, tr trying to imagine and, and, you know, whether it's through history or just your own imagination, you know, what life would be like without those things is, is very powerful, mm -hmm. right? Like that, that's something that's a really important practice. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, with regard to the second half of your question, which is, you know, how does this sort of like, how does this abundance um, uh, sort of uh, interact with the rise of First of all, uh, just like William Gibson would say that the future isn't evenly distributed, utopia and dystopia are, are also unevenly distributed, mm. right? Mm. So like, you know, the, the, the amount of abundance, <laughs> The amount of miraculousness, of modern miraculousness you are experiencing, you know, varies enormously across the population. Like, yeah. like you know, someone who lives in rural Pakistan, they live in a different world than a software engineer in San Francisco, yeah. right? Like, the, 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 those, those are, we have all of these little pocket universes scattered across the earth, right? And everybody's living in, in their own, in their own want. Mm. Um, and so I, I think that like, uh, to, to a large, uh, many of the problems that, that you can point out today, um, climate change included, um, a lot of them are highly correlated with inequality, mm. right? Like why do, why is there still deforestation in the Amazon when no one supports it, right? Like even oil companies don't want to do, don't want the Amazon to be deforested. Why does it happen? Well, it happens because you have folks who are extremely poor, you know, subsistence farmers living in remote rural areas where they have a choice. They can either cut down the trees that they, and then use that land to try to feed their children mm -hmm. or they starve, mm. right? So like, if you're in that, like, can we fault them? Like, can we fault them for cutting down, cutting down that old growth forest? Mm. It, it's pretty hard to, right? Like, I mean, if, if you really put yourself in their shoes, it's, it's pretty hard to fault them personally. Yeah. That's when you have to take a step back and say, hey, we've created an economic system that is, that is broken here, right? Like if we're, a, if, if the, if our economic system leaves people in this, level of destitution where it is worth it for them to cut down an old growth forest and that clearly harms the planet and degrades ecosystems in, in order to simply do something that every human being wants to do, feed themselves and their family, like that's ridiculous, right? Like that is our failure. Um, and so, you know, I, I think that many of, many, many of those things, including nationalism, can be tracked pretty closely back to inequality, but with nationalism in particular, uh, you know, and, and I would sort of like take that a step further, not just saying nationalism, but sort of tribalism, mm. right? Like the, like people retreating into these uh, very uh, sort of fundamentalist identities, right? These, I, these ideas that 
they have a community of people who are always right and that everyone else is wrong. Um, you know, I think that that is very much a reaction to what we were just talking about, to how much uncertainty there is yep. in a world of accelerating change, right? Uncertainty is scary. The unknown is scary. When people feel scared and vulnerable, they often try to build walls around themselves mm -hmm. and around their perceived countries, yep. right? And that's exactly what's happening today. You have a lot of people who feel vulnerable, who feel scared, and they're lashing out. Mm. And so in your own life, how, how are you kind of living, trying to find this essentially good life of how do you deal with uncertainty? <laughs> Awkwardly. <laughs> I mean, uh, let's, how do I deal with uncertainty? Well, um, I always try to keep in mind that there are forces far beyond my control at work, right? And I try to really cultivate a sense of gratitude for the unbelievable privilege of, of that, that I have been blessed to live with uh, in the sense that, you know, like I grew up in the United States, right? Like already, I'm ahead of most of the world in terms of the opportunities I, I grew up with. Um, I happen to grow up in the, in the Bay Area in Oakland, um, which was a, you know, this highly diverse multinational community where I had a lot of exposure to a lot of different kinds of people from so many different places uh, growing up. Mm. And, you know, I was lucky to go to a public high school that, that had, you know, that had really some really great teachers and I, I learned a lot there and that gave me a huge step up. Right. Mm -hmm. um, and so I, I, you know, I had parents who were supportive and who tried to teach me things and who read me stories when I was a kid. Right. Like, so I, I've had so many blessings <laughs> just like coming into this world that, 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 that I try to keep that in mind. Mm -hmm. And that actually gives me more of a, more mental bandwidth to take what other people might perceive as risks. Yep. So as a very concrete example, I remember I, I came out of grad school right in the middle of the recession. And so there weren't that many jobs on offer. And I was very lucky to have a job offer from a uh, large uh, renewable energy company. Mm. And it was like a really good job offer, like for, you know, for a, fresh out of school student. Mm -hmm. um, and then I separately uh, had the opportunity to uh, work as sort of like a part-time independent contractor uh, for a friend who had a seed fund helping to build these sort of startups from the ground up. But there was, you know, no benefits. It was, the pay was like a small percentage of, of what the real job was, uh -huh. right? Um, and, and I really tried to think about, wait a minute, okay, so on paper, it's very obvious what I should do, right? Like if you compared anything about those two positions from a compensation perspective or from like a, I don't know, reputation perspective, um, you know, it, it was an obvious choice. Um, except that, you know, I tried to, uh, to use a different filter for that decision. I tried to think about rather than you know, what, what is best today? I tried to think about, you know, 40 years from now, 
what would I regret less? Mm -hmm. Right. So would I regret sort of like taking the thing that was the obvious good choice or taking the thing that seemed like an adventure? Mm -hmm. Right. And uh, and I'm really happy that I opted for the adventure. Right. Mm -hmm. even, even though my paychecks were way smaller, I was like very much like living on the edge financially. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. um, but it was a, a great decision. I learned way more about the world that way. Um, and so, you know, I think that optimizing for learning is a really good way to think, to wrestle with uncertainty That's, because yeah. it, right. It, it, it removes, it removes a, a certain amount of pressure from your decision, right? Because you're no longer making a decision about results. You're making a decision about inputs, right? Mm -hmm. So I, I think that that's a, a really lovely way to, um, to, to try to grapple with the unknown is, is to try to optimize for learning. And then another thing is to focus on process. So um, if you don't know what's coming, right, you can't control it, but yeah. you can control yourself, mm -hmm. right? So you can control how you react to things. So as an example, um, like everyone, you know, if, if I get a, a like a snarky email from someone, from a colleague, a friend, uh, whoever, um, you know, it, it, it's tempting to immediately, like I immediately am like, what the hell, right? Mm -hmm. And like, I, I immediately want to like jot off an angry reply yeah. or something like that, right? Or, or maybe a passive aggressive reply, <laughs> right? Mm -hmm. um, uh, or maybe I'll like bitch about it to, to a different friend who's with me, right? I'll be like, oh, what the hell? Why is this person being a jerk, right? Mm. Um, and that's very easy to do. It's like, I, you know, it's like that the person was being a jerk. But what I, what I now really try to cultivate in myself is if I get an email that, that provokes an emotional reaction inside me um, where the person is acting like a jerk, I, I try to assume that everything was in good faith a priori so that I try to assume that the person was having a bad day, that they never ate lunch, right? That they're just, that, that, this is like the long end of a stream of crap that they've had to deal with all day long. And that, that they probably already feel bad about the fact that they sent this note. Right. Um, and that turns out to be, true almost every time. Mm -hmm. So, you know, uh, assuming that people, uh, ha you know, are, are acting in good faith until they unequivocally prove otherwise, mm -hmm. right? Until you've actually followed up to try to confirm that, that, that you know, it was a mistake or whatever. Um, uh, you know, I think that's a really useful process to try to cultivate in yourself because now you don't have to worry about predicting when someone's going to send you a weird email. You don't have to try to worry about predicting whether we're going to be using email anymore or we're using telecommute, you know, some other crazy new form of communication. Mm -hmm. um, you're still going to have to deal with relationships, mm -hmm. right? And mm -hmm. I think that, you know, we give children, like toddlers, a lot of credit, right? Like, hey, uh, the kid is having a tantrum. Like, is it because they're a jerk or is it because they missed their nap? Yeah. Right. Like most adults assume the kid is not, it's, 
the, the kid's tantrum is not truly the kid's fault. Yeah. And, and I think that we, are, we, we all irrationally assume that adults are more in control than children are, right? And, and, we, and the, the most irrational assumption is that we ourselves are fully in control, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. So yeah. letting go of that and trying to become more aware of that really can help you wrestle with uncertainty because you are acknowledging that the world is bigger and more complicated than you are. So you are going to do your best and you are going to try to make a difference in other people's lives, but it's not all up to you. Yeah. And so the blame also can't fully fall on you. Mm-hmm. So the takeaway I get from that is essentially that in order to deal with the stress of uncertainty and changing times, it's good to be mindful of your emotions and then connect back in with that you're a small part of a greater whole uh, and that you fit into this, uh, but it, there's much bigger things here and that you don't have access to all the information that would give you the 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 uh, the knowledge to know what somebody is dealing with when they um, act violently towards you. Yeah. And I can give you another specific example. So like, let's say, let's say I bet some of your audience likes reading Michael Lewis book, mm. right? So he wrote like the big short, he, he wrote uh, Liar's Poker. So if you read Liar's Poker, right, it takes place in sort of 1980s Wall Street. And it's sort of about corruption and in, you know, sort of insider trading and all that kind of stuff. And uh, if you imagine, you know, coming up in Wall Street at that time, like there were rules that governed your success on the street, mm-hmm. right? Like there were social rules that, that would, are you going to fit in or not at Goldman? <laughs> mm-hmm. Right. And then there were also like real, like, you know, financial rules that, that, that would sort of govern a lot of the kinds of trading that would be profitable or not. And so you'd be learning all of these rules. And then if you applied them successfully, you could have a pretty good mm. chance mm-hmm. of getting rich, right? Mm. Like you'd be working crazy hours, you'd probably be doing a lot of cocaine. <laughs> um, but, but like you, you, you had a good you had a shot, right? Mm. And, and I would say that now, it's even, it's much harder to do something like that. It, it's much hard. There are far fewer careers in finance included where there is a, an obvious path to going from like where you are to where you want to go. Yep. Right. So, you know, so if you can't, if there aren't rules that are, if the rules are changeable, then, then, then it helps to try to, focus on learning rules rather than memorizing them, right? Mm -hmm. Like rather than like treating your life as something where you're like, okay, I'm going to figure out the rules and then I'm going to apply them. No, that's not going to work if the rules keep changing because you'll Mm -hmm. start applying them and then the rules will change. You won't even realize it and you're going to be obsolete, Mm -hmm. right? Like you're going to fail. So mm -hmm. now it's actually a constant process of like, you can never stop learning new rules. In fact, every day, the world is going to be different than it was yesterday. So you have to pay more attention. You have to listen more. You have to be more, you have to try to, you know, ask different questions and challenge your own assumptions on a daily basis, rather than just going through an initial learning period followed by execution. Yeah. If that makes sense. No, that does make sense. And that calls into question our entire educational system and its fitness for 
educating people is to be lifelong learners because that is not the the goal of right. modern education. Yeah. Absolutely. I mean, okay, so I'm an author, right? Mm -hmm. And I, and few things frustrated me as much as like, you know, English education in this country. I mean, there are many bigger fish to fry, okay? So this, <laughs> <laughs> I'm not saying that this is like the biggest global problem that needs to be solved, but you know, uh, in today's world, like, how does it make sense to try to force kids to read books they don't like? Mm -hmm. Like when I was, when I was growing up, that was what most of English class was, mm -hmm. right? Like we had to read these books that felt like they didn't apply to uh, like it just, they didn't, they, we didn't want to read them. Mm -hmm. Right. Like, and, and I always loved reading. I grew up a book where my parents were always reading to me and all this stuff. And so I remember in high school, just like, ignoring the curriculum mm. like I would just not read the books assigned or I would start them and I hated them so I would stop reading them and then I would make up my essays about them <laughs> yeah. right like and and instead I would read books I actually wanted to read yeah. and that that is what made me a better lifelong learner that's what made me a better reader that's what allowed me to access you know the wisdom of our greatest thinkers, the best stories that have ever been told, like all of that stuff, right? It was from following my own curiosity into all of the wisdom and ideas that are captured in, in this incredible technology we call books, right? Mm -hmm. And so, you know, if we wanted to, you know, take that as a very specific example, what would be the most important thing that we could teach kids in an English class uh, today? It's really simple. We just want to teach them to love reading and writing, mm -hmm. right? Like if we teach them to love reading, they're going to figure out the rest for themselves, mm. right? So if they want to read Goosebumps or the Hardy Boys or whatever, get, let them read all of the Goosebumps books and then maybe suggest, hey, you like Goosebumps, check out Stephen King, mm. right? Like now you're going to be reading Stephen King. Stephen King has a lot of real character growth and develop like interesting things going on mm -hmm. in his books that really are relevant to people's lives. Then you take that a step further, right? So like, it, you know, the, you can every, you can create a path to wisdom from any place. Mm -hmm. Right. And so pretending that we all need to do it in the same formulaic way is not only ridiculous and sort of silly, but it's also counterproductive. Right. Like if we teach kids to hate reading because we force them to read things that are totally irrelevant to them and that won't resonate with them, we have now that's worse than just never teaching them anything about reading. Right. right? Yeah. Like like that. That's actually a negative. Mm. Um, so I think that that's a very specific example of, OK, how could we take, uh, you know, a, an education, an educational system that was designed in the way it is for good reason and adapt it for a new world. Yep. And so I want to, I want to, I want to move towards uh, creativity and the relationship with stress. What, and, and you can answer this either at your own personal life or in a larger abstract theoretical way. What is the relationship between creativity and stress? So I, I think that creativity is basically, I, I, there was a screenwriter who, who wrote something really beautiful about creativity because it was so straightforward. And I was like, oh, that is that's excellent. And it went something along the lines of, like I'm paraphrasing here, but 
uh, it was basically, um, you know, notice things that you wish existed in the world and then make them, mm. right? So, you know, that could be a piece of music. It could be, uh, it could be a product that solves a problem that you're experiencing. It, it could be a film. It could be a sketch. It could be, uh, I don't know, some pottery. It could be absolutely anything, right? It, it could be a party, right? It could be hosting a party or uh, an event for a really specific group of people. Um, and that's what creativity is. That's all creativity is. There's nothing unique or special about the kind of creativity that allows, that, 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 that uh, artists use to make art, right? Like we all are creative. Every single human, like cre creativity is just a part of being human. So uh, if you want to be more creative, just just notice things that you wish existed and make them. Mm. That's it. Like that's what creativity is. Um, and it can, you know, you can uh, apply it in any uh, area of your life, right? Like it could be a date, right? Like you imagine what you, what an awesome date that you think this person who you're falling in love with would deeply appreciate and you make it happen. Like that's creativity. Like you're creating something new in the world that you wish existed. That's, mm. and that's beautiful. Now, how does that relate to stress? Um, I mean, I think that stress is simply the pressure we put on ourselves to get things done, mm -hmm. right? So uh, there is a relationship to stress in the sense that if we want to make something happen in the world, we actually have to do it, right? Mm -hmm. Like if you just imagine things that could be cool but never make them, you're not being creative, you're just daydreaming, mm -hmm. right? So... So I do think that uh, we we have to we have to actually you know get the rubber to meet the road. So yeah. you have to you put pressure on yourself to make it happen, and then that makes it happen. I've actually always found that having a bias to action reduces stress. So for example, if if you want to make something happen, rather than thinking a lot about rather than giving yourself time to you know keep thinking and rethinking and considering and sort of mulling over all the things you need to do to make it happen just figure out what step one is and just do it mm. right and then just figure out what step two is and do it and what you'll find is that rather than spending all your time mulling over all of these things you have to do that by starting to do one and then two and then three, you build up psychological momentum, right? So then suddenly it becomes more and more natural to just keep going. And this doesn't have to apply again to like you building a company, you writing a song or anything else. I mean, that can be as simple as just like, you know, I, I feel like having a bias to action is helpful even when you're doing chores, right? Like don't bother or when you're going through your inbox, like don't, don't like, click every email and read it and then minimize it so that you can read the rest of the email. If you read an email, read it and just reply right away, mm -hmm. right? You'll save a ton of time. Otherwise you'll go back three times and reread the email three times. And you know, as you're what you're going to be, it's going to be in the back of your head and you're going to be thinking about, right? Like you, you're much better off if you just cultivate a sense of presence while you're actually reading the damn email and deal with it right away. Yeah. Um, so I, I think that that's one, you know, a way in which creativity is related to stress. I think that there is another way, um, which is that 
if stress is the pressure we put on ourselves to get things done, we too often um, outsource control of, of what we think we need to get done, right? Mm -hmm. So we allow other people to define our agenda and that makes us even more stressed, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. So if you have other people or environmental factors that are, you know, uncomfortably pushing you to, 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 to then put pressure on yourself to get things done, mm -hmm. that's where stress can get really damaging, right? So a good example of this is if you're working on a, if you're working in a company and there's a culture in the company of like working late, mm -hmm. right? Or of like not sleeping very much and putting in long hours, like even though you may know that your work, the quality of your work will degrade mm -hmm. because you're working too much. Um, it can be difficult to take, to, to, to act that out in practice because there's still this overwhelming social pressure to, to do it anyway, even though it, it actually degrades the value of your contribution. Yeah. Right. So I think that, you know, a lot of stress management is about taking ownership of the fact that we can only put all of our own creation, right? Like stress is a reaction to things. So we can control our reaction to things. So if you are in a company that has a really negative culture and you want to stay at that company, you don't want to quit, then you're going to have to take a lot of initiative to manage your own internal emotional state to make sure that you actually leave early and screw the social consequences. Mm -hmm. yep. Right. Like, or even better that you articulate why you're doing better work in the way that you're doing it by not overworking, by, living a lovely, balanced, healthy life, right? Like that, the best, right? Mm -hmm. And so if you, if you allow other people to control the stress that you put on yourself, that's going to hamper your creativity mm -hmm. because that's no longer productive stress, right? That's not you saying, hey, here's the thing I want to exist in the world. I'm going to make it. Now I'm going to pressure myself to actually do it. Mm -hmm. Right. That's good. That's the kind of stress that helps you be creative, like to actually make things. Yeah. But if, but if you have all of this other stress from other people that has nothing to do with you being creative, like that gets drowned out. Right. Instead, you're going to just be always feeling like you're put upon and you're and 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 you don't have the mental bandwidth to make anything you want to happen happen. Mm. Right. So. I, I think that recognizing, first of all, like that stress, like other negative emotions or emotions that can be negative is often a reaction to our reaction to the world rather than a natural law of the world. Mm. And then taking ownership of our own emotions, including of our own stress, mm. right? And then taking step three, okay, now that I'm more aware, right? How can I use this awareness to my advantage? How can I use it to do work that matters? How can I use it to make things I'm proud of for people I care about? And that's creativity. Mm. And so I want to get into what you're actually creating uh, these science fiction books that you write. What are the main themes that you write about? Well, I'd say that, <laughs> you know, the overarching theme is actually, uh, sort of the question we start with, what does it mean to live a good life in, in an age of accelerating change? Uh -huh. um, I'd say that actually probably links all my books together 
on a meta level. Mm -hmm. I mean, individually, uh, you know, I have a book, Cumulus, that, that's pretty well known that, uh, that takes place in a near future Bay Area ravaged by you know, sort of economic inequality and per, uh, pervasive surveillance. Uh, my latest book, Borderless, which uh, came out about a month ago, um, looks at how sort of, I guess you could say, like the clash between Washington and Silicon Valley, mm -hmm. or if you want to go a little mm -hmm. bit more philosophical, how, um, how the Internet is changing and challenging the definition of the nation state, mm -hmm. right? How we now live in this world where there is the economy is entirely global. Information is entirely global. All of these climate change is a challenge that is that faces the entire planet together. And yet we still have these like very arbitrary um, political lines that we've drawn on the world that define sovereignty, that, that define where we write the rules, where, how we control behavior and, and who we are as citizens, right? Mm -hmm. Like, I think that, uh, th like, in many ways, uh, the internet is, is illustrating how arbitrary um, the nation state is as a concept. I mean, mm -hmm. you know, talk about something you're born into, that's an assumption all of us have grown up with, right? Mm -hmm. Like, we are from a certain country. Well, you know, countries didn't exist in the way they do today with citizenship where it was really a part of your identity until a couple hundred years ago after the Treaty of Westphalia in Western Europe. There mm. are, you know, countries are a collective fiction. There's something that we have all agreed to believe in because it helps us collaborate, which is really cool until you start having problems that exceed the level of collaboration, like climate change, like uh, financial corruption or like, you know, uh, like global inequality, all of those kinds of things. So I think that in the next few decades, that is something that will really define the geopolitics yeah. of our world. And so Borderless, this book extrapolates that and plays with that and wrestles with that question um, in, in a story that's a thriller, that's, mm -hmm. a, you know, it's a spy thriller, right? Mm -hmm. So hopefully it is entertaining as, as well as thought-provoking. So, and, and you study international affairs. Are you familiar with the theory that uh, we live in an anarchic global system and that uh, nation states rise and on their rise up is pretty violent and then they, and then they, uh, uh, and then they establish a unipolar state? Well, I'm sorry, I'm not explaining this right. There's a unipolar state, there's a bipolar state, and there's a multipolar state. And that um, we were in a bipolar state with the Soviet Union, and that was actually pretty uh, stable because you had two equally powered countries that were useful. And then America started to become a unipolar state as the Soviet Union collapsed. Uh, and then we have a unipolar state, which is inherently uh, dysfunctional once the unipolar state starts to um, descend. And so now we're entering into this world where the, there is a relative decline in the United, power of the United States while a rising of China and a sort of rising of Russia, not too much, and we're entering a multipolar state. Do you see any, any um, opportunity for large scale international conflict that we haven't seen in a long time at all? Yeah, so I mean, uh, I think that the best example of this is uh, Thucydides' Trap, hmm. which uh, yeah. refers to ancient Greece, where uh, Sparta was the most powerful city-state in Greece for a long time, and then Athens, um, was up in the upswing, <laughs> right? Mm -hmm. Like, and, uh, you know, it had this sort of cultural revolution happening and it, it was just, it was the ri a rising new power and that that dynamic, 
the dynamic of, you know, one top dog and then a new rising challenger um, is a very dangerous geopolitical situation, mm. right? So in Greece, it resulted in, in war. Mm. Um, uh, and, and, and when you look at the details of why wars start, why major conflicts start, this dynamic is disturbingly common mm -hmm. among many major wars throughout history, right? Where you have one power who's in charge and then a new power rising. Um, there, that sort of, uh, that, that background tension mm -hmm. um, is oftentimes more, uh, uh, more important than the individual historical action that might have that might is uh, that is often portrayed as sparking the conflict, mm -hmm. right? So it's sort of like, um, in I mean, I I always think that it's you know if you want to try to make sense of geopolitics, just sort of like imagine your own personal life, or better mm -hmm. even better than that, um, imagine a kindergarten, mm -hmm. <laughs> right? Yeah. So yeah. I mean, like I feel like that's sort of like the best analogy out there, yeah. and. Uh, but I mean, even, okay, so like take your personal life, you know, and let's say, you, let's say, you know, you have a spouse or a partner and um, how many of us have experienced that thing where like, where we are arguing with our partner, like we start a fight where we're like arguing with our spouse about like who didn't pick up the dog poop or like who you know, should have done the dishes or why didn't you, you know, uh, text this person to know we were going to be late. These like stupid little things, right. Which like the minute you zoom out at all, you're like, what is this? Like, what, like, how is this worth the, the emotional labor of having this <laughs> frustrated argument? Like it, like clearly it is totally irrelevant. Mm -hmm. Right. But what it's doing is, is there's already some subsurface tension. So, whatever that thing was that sparked the argument is not the thing, mm -hmm. right? The thing is the underlying tension that needs to be resolved. Yeah. And so we've all had, that's not what's really going on here. What's really going on here is deeper and it's X, mm -hmm. right? And I think that, you know, Thucydides' trap is a big warning sign that should be plastered on everyone's under, you know, on every headline about global geopolitics right now. Because if you look at, you know, like the U S and China, basically, um, you know, the vast majority of, of the relationship between the U S and China is extraordinarily positive, right? Like they're by far our biggest trading partner. Like right now there's a lot of like positive, uh, feedback loops that are built into our relationship with China. However, there's also this underlying tension. There's this underlying tension that Americans have started wrestling on their laurels, right? Like the USA is used to thinking of itself as the superpower, like the best place on earth, number one, right? And that is it is very uncomfortable to come to terms with the fact that that may not be true anymore or for much longer. Mm -hmm. Right. So that that if you think about that, if you use Thucydides trap as a mental model, um, it'll help you make sense of the headlines. Mm -hmm. But 
it should also uh, be a warning, be a warning that, that we need to be extra careful, that we need to make every effort we possibly can to encourage trust between nations at a time like this, to build bridges rather than constructing walls mm. at a time like this, to try to understand each other better um, and to try to um, uh, assume the best right? Like assume, assume good intentions and try to work on that basis to try to strengthen international institutions. Like now is a time when that is extremely relevant because while Thucydides trap is real and why you can find a lot of historical evidence for it, it is not inevitable. Mm. There have been times in history as well when uh, one rising power displacing another did not result in war, mm. right? And that's, that is what we have to act on from history, right? We have to act on the very real danger we face by taking steps to avoid its realization. Mm. Interesting. So we only have a couple minutes left. I usually ask this to all the guests at the end. What is one book, article, idea, or concept that you've read or heard recently that has significantly changed your ability to create? Can I give two? Sure, go for it. Okay, so uh, the first one, um, if you enjoyed the, that uh, sort of what we were just talking about, thinking uh -huh. about Thucydides' trap, thinking about the lessons of history, there's an incredible book called, wait for it, The Lessons of History <laughs> by uh, Will and Ariel Durant. Uh-huh. Um, it is, I'm checking right now, because I know how intimidating history books can be, right? They're always like door stops and they're super dense and, oh yeah, I should read it, but really it's just going to sit on my shelf the whole time. Uh -huh. yeah. The Lessons of History is 102 pages long. Oh, nice. Okay, so you can, you can read it in one sitting or maybe two or three sittings. Uh -huh. um, and... Will and Ariel Durant are Pulitzer Prize-winning Prize historians. They're incredibly accomplished. And this book, which was released many years ago, I can check the publication date. Um, let me see. 1968. So it came out originally in 1968. And it is the distillation of all of the most important lessons they learned from spending, you know, jointly more than a century uh, uh, researching history, researching yeah. human history. And so it is just a masterpiece because it really tries to distill those, uh, those, those most important lessons. And, and I am just, I'm real, I was, blown away by this book. I think it will substantially change how you see the world and, mm. and, and our role in it. Mm. Um, so I, I think that is just, that's one that you should read mm. that I plan to reread and that you should gift to other people, mm. right? Because it's just, it'll really, it'll give you a new lens uh, to see the world through. That sounds um, good. Yeah. And then the second one, um, because you asked, what would I recommend to creative people? 
right? Yep. To like help them do their own work. Mm -hmm. So um, this is a very this is a very different recommendation, but uh, a very important one as well. Um, uh, are you familiar with Seth Godin? Yes, I'm familiar with him, but I don't know too much about him. So he called This is Marketing. Mm -hmm. um, it came out like last month. Um, I love the book. I'm, I'm not a huge fan of the title because I feel like the title uh, sort of, sort of maybe implies that the book is about salesmanship uh -huh. and it isn't uh -huh. at all. Um, in fact, I think that Seth is one of the things I love about Seth's philosophy and his, his writing is, uh, is, is how he, he tries to access what is actually important about marketing in how it can help you create change for other people through your work. Mm. So, you know, like this isn't a book, this is not a book about like how to run Facebook ad campaign. Mm -hmm. This is a book about how to do work you're proud of for people you care about. It's a, it's a book about how to try to think how, how good marketing is actually be, being thoughtful and empathetic mm -hmm. about the people's whose lives you hope to change for the better, trying to understand them better, and then trying to offer them things that help them improve their own lives, mm -hmm. right? Um, and it's very actionable. Mm -hmm. um, it's, it's really straightforward. He does an incredible job with examples and anecdotes that really illustrate how to apply this for your own creative work, whether you are a web designer or a pianist, you know, or a poet, mm. right? Or it, whoever you might be. I really think this is, you know, sort of like a field guide um, to, to being more adaptable to actually sharing your work um, in an age of accelerating change mm. uh, that, that I think uh, certainly has, changed how I look at my work and I think would really, uh, you know, might offer the same kind of benefits to listeners. Yep. I just bought it. <laughs> uh, yeah. Thank, let me know what you think. Yeah. Thank you so much, Elliot, for coming on the show. How can people find you if they have more questions? Uh, I'm really easy to find. Just Google my name, elliotpepper.com. Um, you can find my books there. I send out a, if you like these reading recommendations, I actually send out a um, monthly reading recommendation email that um, that people seem to like. Uh, so that that's uh, that's a fun one. But yeah, just you know, look look me up. Um, I always love hearing from readers. So uh, let me know what you think, yeah. and yeah. Uh, go out there and pay it forward. And what's your Twitter? Oh, just at my name at Elliot Pepper, and I'm pretty active on Twitter. Cool. Awesome. Thank you so much. Cheers. Thanks for tuning into the show. If you liked it, please go ahead and find us on iTunes or Spotify and hit the subscribe button. 
I'll publish each episode by Monday morning before your commute, so make sure to check in then. And this is a reminder to just own your crazy, because the challenges that this world will be facing over the next hundred years will require us to think way outside the box. As Hunter S. Thompson said, when the going gets weird, the weird turn pro. Thanks. Have a great day. Thank you.